I do smoke in here too. I don't know if it bothers you. Or, or not. You're fine, man. Right, cool. Um, some people I ask, some people I don't. I just smoke in their face. Yeah, my first job <laughs> depends was, who they are. <laughs> my first job was at um, Holiday Lane's Bowling Alley, and um, it was just a consistent cloud of smoke yeah. <laughs> for every minute of your shift. <laughs> 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 nice. Hello, everyone. Uh, we're back here in Highlands Bunker in the shadow of Rockford Tower in the belly of the beast. Uh, tonight, we're uh, going to do a uh, meet a candidate. Uh, Larry Lambert's first time we've met. Oh. Uh, he's a community organizer and activist in the 7th uh, Representative District, and he's going to be a Democratic candidate for the uh, Delaware House. So Absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for coming in. The pleasure's all mine, Rob. I want to thank you for the warm invite, man. You know, we, we came down here, you offered us food, off, offered us drink, you know, we're in the bunker. <laughs> yeah, Feels I tell good. people, man, I, I, one of the things I try to do here is sort of foster a spirit of, like, solidarity, especially especially for, and uh, some candidates have been in, especially for candidates who are standing up and, and doing, like, really in the electoral realm and trying to do important stuff. Absolutely. And try to make challenges and make real change because it takes, it, it takes a lot of guts to do it. Thank you. And I feel like... I uh, just try to foster everybody, and uh, I know uh, Jamie, your uh, your 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 candidate, your uh, campaign man is here. Uh, manage he, here, manage yes, yeah. Uh, Jamie and I know each other. Um, you know, we just again, we just try to foster an, a relationship between among everybody because you know everybody's doing such important stuff to me. So um, welcome. Truly really appreciated. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we usually start at the beginning, and I was looking at uh, some of your information today and some of your literature. So you're a local guy. You're from the district your whole life? Absolutely. I was born and raised in the district, and I'm proud of it. Um, you know, I went to Brandywine High School where I graduated. I went on to become a teacher in the district. I was di the director of arts programming at the Claymont Boys and Girls Club, and I substituted at Brandywine High School. So, you know, a lot of the work that I do is community-based. Yesterday, pardon me, two days ago, I did a mobile food pantry event in Claymont in the Overlook Colony area. We fed 86 families. Each family got 100 pounds per food per family, and it really showed how strong the need was out there. When it comes to the Food Bank of Delaware, you need a minimum of 45 people to come out, and we hit the maximum of 75 people. So the additional people were what was left over. Basically, we cleaned out a whole a whole truck from the food bank. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I, when I was when I was looking at a lot of your literature, the the, the list of uh, of organizing and activism you've done uh, probably in the last decade or more is really incredible. I had to commend you. that. It's really cool. And and really, it's a team effort. You know, I stand on the shoulders of those that have come before me. One of the reasons that I ran for office is because I want to give back to a community that's given so much to me. Yeah, so what was there anything specific um, that sort of drove you to run this time? Is it something you've been thinking about? Because obviously you've been doing sort of community work. Um, you know, what uh, motivated you now to sort of jump in? So for me, the reason that I ever ran for office was because last year the incumbent, Brian Short, who was in office for over a dozen years, he announced his retirement suddenly in February. And while it caught a lot of people off guard, there were two individuals that immediately decided to run. So the some of the nonprofits in the area, some of the local mom and pop businesses in the area, as well as some of the residents, they said to me, they said, Larry, have you ever considered running? We don't really know these cats, you know, but we trust you. So I never really considered running, but I was always ready to serve my community at a higher capacity, whatever the community needs. So I did my due diligence. I put my feelers out there to try to see what the temperature of the community was. So immediately one neighbor stood up and he said, Larry, I'll be your campaign manager. Another neighbor stood up and said, Larry, I'll be your treasurer. And the rest was history. Nice. It's very good. Um, so what, um, what kind of issues have you been focusing on? For example, uh, when you knock doors or you talk to folks in the district, um, what are you hearing from them? What kind of issues do they have? And sort of how has that formulated your idea of what you, what kind of impact you'd like to make in Dover? And thank you for mentioning that my campaign started with listening. Too often people try to dictate to people what they need 
And when we started with listening, the feedback that we got from the community is the same feedback that I've heard for years. People are concerned about their property values. People are concerned about education. They're concerned about skyrocketing healthcare costs. Um, and one of my approaches to dealing with some of, the, some of these issues is to get at the root causes. So while we have new economic development coming into town, a lot of that isn't reaching our families. A lot of our young people aren't being put on a pathway to take advantage of these opportunities. And that's why my main platform is around education and economics, because what's the point of staying in school if there's not a decent paying job at the end of it? One of the ways that I engage both of these issues from a holistic approach is I look at the new development in the area. So to our north, kissing our northern border, is a $70 million train station coming into town. I serve as secretary of the Claymont Renaissance Development Corporation. We helped to bring in that train station. We applied for the Tiger Grants. Towards our southern border is Gulf Tainer's expansion into the Edgemore ports. They're investing over $400 million to develop the port, bringing in 5,600 new family-sustaining wage jobs. Before I came here today, the reason why I'm in this suit is because I was at the graduation for the Pathways to Apprenticeship program. It's a program where they take young people from low-income backgrounds, some of them are second-chance citizens, some of them um, may uh, be on uh, public assistance, and it's a pathway for them to get into the apprenticeship program so that they can take advantage of this new economic opportunity coming into town. I'm also co-chair of the Desert Banking Initiative. I worked with a company that owns, that has the contract with the port for 50 years, Golf Tainer. I worked with that company to bring in three things, banking jobs, banking facilities uh, uh, through uh, Dell One Federal Credit Union, and most importantly, what I stand for, what I'm here bringing to the seventh district is jobs for people in the area. So we have a program where they can learn the fundamentals of, of the industry and be put on a pathway to get those jobs. That raises an interesting point sort of at, at a granular level because <clears throat> there are some jobs that you can bring in, obviously port jobs, especially because their union jobs are going to pay well. Um, other, you know, other things that you can bring in are going to pay well, but some of the service jobs simply don't. And in Dover, there's been a huge sort of controversy, in my opinion, about um, – raising the minimum wage and then chipping away at the, at the very sort of paltry gains that are even made for folks who are taking you know, so the lowest wage sort of jobs, whether they be service, food industry, whatever, retail. Um, what's your, have you, I'm, I, I imagine you followed that with some interest. What is your, what's your position on it and what do you think you can do differently that, that hasn't been done to try to get us to a $15 minimum wage? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. For me, converse, for me, documentation beats conversation. I stand on action, not rhetoric. For two years, I was co-chair of Delaware's Living Wage Coalition. We advocated and we fought for a livable wage in Delaware. And, the, and what we got back from politicians was them raising the minimum wage by 50 cent and then patting themselves on the back for the next two years. That's not acceptable. These incremental Democrats, this incremental change, it's not meaningful, sustainable change. So when it comes to legislation around a livable wage pegged to inflation, that's what I stand for. That, that's one of, the, one of my main legislative goals. And for me, I have a little issue with the term raising the minimum wage. I don't really agree with that. In 1968, 51 years ago, the minimum wage prorated for inflation was the modern equivalent of $14 an hour. I'm not here to raise the wage. I'm here to return it back to what it was before this economic inequity. Before, you know, back when we had a working class that actually worked for the people. No, I, I, I love that framing. I love that framing because I think it, it, tell, it, showed, it shows people that, you know, you're actually being, you're being ripped off, really. Um, frankly, when I sometimes when I ask people or we I discuss it with people who I know what their stance is, I say really it should be twenty, thank you, or twenty two or twenty two fifty or whatever. I mean, you see the the, inc the incredible uh, you know income disparity and income gap uh, that's growing every day, 
And the reason that that's happening is because whatever productivity gains you're seeing, the people that are working for it don't see any of it. Absolutely. And it's and it's by you know it's by design. And I'm I'm especially happy. The other framing that I always sort of push on is this idea that we do some sort of incremental change and a bunch of carve outs to make sure you know the folks that are stealing that money continue to do it right and and then but but we do something that we can pat ourselves on the back and kind of stroke off about and say oh this is this is super when it's not nearly enough it's it's in some cases it's less than the minimum you could do exactly and and when you look at the way that uh things typically work in Dover, even around, you know, wage, uh, wage issues, what they'll do is they'll set a $15 minimum wage, right? But then it'll be eight years out or something. So that by the time that we get up to it, it'll be a laughable wage at that time, you know? So that's why it's time for bold leadership, new leadership. It's time to turn the page on the Delaware way. That's why I'm running for state representative. Uh, we're just going to everything you're saying right now is part of our charter. We're going to deputize you as a uh, you're going you're going to come right in as a second lieutenant of, of this of this movement. I love it. Yeah, signing in for duty. Yes, I, I I love it. I mean, and that's really the thing is is and and I hope we talk about this a little more later tonight when we when our other guest joins, just about being someone who's going to take accountability for their ideas, their progressive ideas. Their, you know, their their leftist ideas, whatever you want to call them, and really be held accountable for doing it. And you know, it's not about sort of saying we did something and and, and checking a box. You really have to impact the material conditions of your constituents when you go and knock on the door and talk to them and say, like, what's up? What what what? You know, what's your health care like? What do you worry about? Things like that. Exactly. When you look at this social determinants of health, the old way of dealing with these issues isn't working out. Historically, we throw money at a problem and we hope that it works out. But that's not working out. We have to get at the root causes. And when we start looking at the root causes, a lot of the root causes of these issues are intergenerational poverty. You can trace back things such as domestic violence, the opioid crisis, uh, crime. If we're not dealing with economics in a meaningful way, we're not dealing with anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, that's another issue that's come up just this week. And, um, there's a, 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 I think it's the only one, um, clinic left that's treating medically treating, uh, opioid addicts, uh, on Lancaster Avenue. And there's a, you know, a huge, uh, controversy about whether it should even stay there. Uh, you know, and, and, People don't really want to pay for it. The mayor wants to move it out of the city or sort of separate it for for issues that really just come down to people's irrational sort of fear. Right. And and I, I feel like if, if, if real leaders sort of step in and represent people and are able to sort of bridge that divide, we can do a lot of things that we, we that right now we can't do because there's nobody bridging that divide. People stand up and say, I don't want. Uh, you know, opioid patients being treated in my neighborhood. Right. Uh, and rather than say, look, this is, you know, and, and give them the information, uh, a, a lot of politicians will sort of uh, pander to that and play both sides. And it's a really lack of leadership. And I, I love that f- folks like you are stepping in to say, yeah, that's not, that's not good enough, really. It doesn't meet a standard of representing um you know, real people in the, in the district that I'm supposed to represent. Absolutely. Uh, and back to what you mentioned earlier, which is the bedrock of my campaign, which is listening. You listen to the people. What do they need? What will help them out when it comes to this opioid crisis issues around addiction? And the feedback that I receive is that they need better long term treatment. Like when you look at the Hero Help program with the county and everything, as helpful as that is, a lot of these programs are a little more short term, you know, it's like exposure to treatment where we need to really dive in. And when we're able to take that deeper dive, that 30 day treatment, that longer term treatment, then we can really start to deal with the trauma. Like I said, the root causes, you know. So we have the Gardensia Treatment Center uh, just outside of the district in Norwood and Claymont. And in that area, it's a center where it's for women and they're able to bring their children with them because studies have shown that one of the main reasons that mothers don't go into treatment is because they can't take their kids with them. You know, they don't want to leave their kids exposed to, you know, other other issues in the community. So that's why I'm really proud of that program being uh, near our district. Now, another thing that I believe in 
is what uh, what Frederick Douglass said, which is that it's easier to raise a child than it is to fix a broken man. And that's why I engage with the kids so much. That's why it's my passion. This past summer in our district, at our local Claymont Boys and Girls Club, where I serve on the unit board, we, we brought in the Aquila Drug Treatment Center. Now, I volunteered there a couple of times before. It's, it's basically the best center for teens when it comes to addiction issues. So we brought them to the Claymont Club for an intensive two-part program. The first program, first part of the program dealt with um, you know, preventative uh, prevention, what to look out for, what are the side effects. And then the second part of the program dealt with what do you do if someone you love or someone in your family is drug addicted? What can you do as a child? The program went off so well and it was so well received that the kids asked them to come back again. And that's what I want to do. I want to make sure that our young people have the tools and the resources while they're young so that they get that strong foundation, that bedrock foundation. So when they're trying to maneuver in the adult world and these challenges come up, they're already they're ready for it and, and they're able to maneuver properly. I love it. So what uh, what do you have planned? How can people help? Like it's time for the plugs. I know uh, Jamie's smiling about this right now. Uh, so yeah, so what what have you, what kind of stuff do you have going today as far as uh, making sure you get uh, money, send money to Larry? We'll we'll link that in the show notes for for absolute sure. Uh, I'm sure you're looking for volunteers to help absolutely. go door to door to help put things together. Um, what else? Are you, what else are you doing, and how can you be reached? So our campaign, we nicknamed ourselves the Love Campaign. You know, we want to make sure that everybody that comes in, that everything that they do, it's with a smile, it's with love. So you're going to get that warm welcome. But in order for us to win this time, we came up 86 votes shy last time, you know, running up against a, a big corporate machine. But this time we're going to win. Everybody that supported us before, we need everybody to do a little bit more. And those of, those of our friends, our allies out there that are new to the campaign, we need you to step up too. So my campaign manager, Jamie, is going to share with you ways that you can get involved. Well, <laughs> the best way to get involved is door knocking because like these kind of campaigns are one, essentially one door at a time. Um, I mean, I can't really stress it enough. We need people knocking doors in that district every weekend and probably a lot of weekdays too. And then also, um, you know, so the max donation in Delaware is just $600 and I'm kind of channeling uh, Vanessa from the working families party here, but, uh, we, that helps like these campaigns are one essentially on those door knocks and then the donations. So please donate and every, every little bit counts with the, with this. So those are for the every, ways. for every max donation, uh, if you want, I'll, I'll announce it and I will call it a, a Vanessa Clifford, uh, uh, love foundation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, we, we, we do love Vanessa's a, a friend of the program. She's so. the best. And let, she let is me. The best. And then um, also, if you want to get more involved, and ideally you do, because he's a great candidate and he absolutely deserves to be in Dover, then we do need uh, you know like certain positions in the team still filled out, and you know please just contact the website or the Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and get in touch with us, and we'll place you. But that's that would be huge, and we would love that. Absolutely, and feel free to donate at LarryForDelaware.com. That's F-O-R. Every donation is greatly appreciated. The $600 ones are more appreciated, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate it more every dollar it yeah, goes up. That's um, how it works. Yeah, I think it's an important thing, and we're probably going to talk about it more as the night goes on, that these uh, sort of insurgent sort of activists – in touch with the people campaigns. Yeah, there's a campaign during electoral season, but you know, we fought last time, got a couple wins. But we just got to keep that. We got to fight again. There you go. And we have to meet these people. It's not. It's about activating more people. You know, it's it's not about talking to the same people in the power structures. That's sort of what got us in this situation. Thank you. It's why the schools are the way they are. It's why the healthcare is the way that it is. You can go right on down the line. And that's why poverty is the way that it is, et cetera. Yeah. So those power structures need to be beat by mobilizing people about what their material concerns are. That's why it's so important to get involved in whatever way that you can. Um, 
because that's really what's going to, you know, these are razor thin margins because it's just a matter of organizing people. It's difficult. It's, it's hard work, but, but it's possible. It can be done. Absolutely. And, and little by little, we're going to get, we're going to get people who have a personal sort of, uh, personal constitution and a personal morality that are going to hold themselves responsible for real change also i just want to say like with larry's platform and you know there are obviously similar people running with similar platforms like medina for instance th this is exactly the kind of platform that gets people who normally don't vote to vote and at the end of the day like that's what we all should be doing Clearly, a lot of people in the party are not doing that, and it's time to change the party and have this kind of platform and activate those people. So again, that's why I said the most important thing you can do is knock doors and talk to people about why this platform you know, helps yourself, helps them, and it's just important for the state. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I am, um, you know, I'm, I'm just struck by uh, how many people are getting involved and keeping it as a sustained sort of action. Yep. And really trying um, to address these kind of problems, you know, it's not fading away. It's a, it's a movement. It's not like a moment. You know, it's it's, it's sustained over time. So I'm I'm yeah I'm I'm hopeful about that because it's really cool what's happened over the last couple of years. And frankly, uh, Larry's mentioned you know I don't know half a dozen a dozen sort of different things uh, you, what you're involved with now and your experience in the community and I don't even think based on what I read this afternoon that's even half of the things that you've done over your life um, so I, I challenge anybody to 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 come back to us and say who's more involved in the community who has more you know, deeper roots and deeper passion and wants to have themselves be held accountable for the community I challenge anybody because I've, I that was a, that was quite a quite a CV the resume is so huge I had to edit it from the list <laughs> I had to like say you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. St stick to the bullet points because it's a massive resume yeah, yeah I mean if you want to look at somebody who obviously has has, has a commitment to where they're from um I, I you know I, I couldn't imagine and I can imagine quite a bit I couldn't imagine anybody doing more um I thank you for coming in Thank you. The pleasure's all mine. And again, Rob, you know, you were a gracious host. I appreciate the warm welcome. And I just want to give a quick shout out to the 7th District. We're made up of some of the most wonderful neighborhoods in all of Delaware. I'm talking about North Grayland Crest, Lancashire, Wendy Bush, Gwenhurst, all the beautiful uh, communities of Claymont and the Ardens as well. You know, like I said, it's always been my home. When I graduated from Temple University, I had the option to leave. I could have hit the ground and ran, but I stayed home because I was raised with those fundamental values of loyalty, hard work, looking out for your fellow man. That's what I stand for. And that's why I encourage everybody to get involved with this campaign and also to vote for me on September 15th, 2020. Nice. Folks, uh, we're going to... Uh... We're going to take a brief break here. Uh, we're going to probably have a slice of pizza and uh, chill out. Uh, and then we're going to come back to you shortly with a, uh, with a very special guest. Uh, until then, while you're waiting, you could always go to uh, patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. You could get yourself a patronage, $5 a month, $10 a month. Help out the work that we're doing. You could go on iTunes. You could search for Highlands Bunker Podcast. You could subscribe. You could write us a nice uh, review. Tell us how great we are. Um, tell Carl how great he is. Whatever you want to do. Uh, Thanks, Carl. <laughs> hooray. <laughs> uh, so we're going to take a, uh, a brief uh, brief break, and we'll be back with a very, very, very special guest. I shit you not. Left is best. Hello, comrades and friends. We're back uh, here with you, with Larry and Jamie and uh, Carl. And um, we're going to start the second half of the program. Uh, I'm going to uh, sort of start by talking about a book I've been reading. I just finished it. Uh, Ryan Grimm of The Intercept has written a book called We've Got People. Uh, and chapter 16 of that book is called Orientation. Uh, it begins with the story of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Congressional Orientation Day. Um, on that day, she decided to join the Sunrise Movement of activists uh, occupying Speaker Pelosi's office. That's how she orientated herself to the House. Um, she risked uh, arrest to do this. Uh, and the story talks about how she was um, 
she was with uh, some folks uh, on her staff uh, and, and folks that worked with her, uh, Corbin Trent, Psycat uh, Chakrabarti, and uh, Alexandra uh, Rojas. Uh, this is grim from the book. Chakrabarti, Rojas, and Trent had co-founded the organization Justice Democrats, which began as an effort to elect hundreds of new progressive Democrats and converted itself in the last months of Ocasio-Cortez's challenge to Joe Crawley into a weapon wielded solely on her behalf. Now Chakrabarti would become her chief of staff, Trent her communications director, Rojas would go from co-director of Justice Democrats to its sole head. And so I'm very pleased uh, to introduce to everybody uh, the sole head and executive director of the Justice Democrats, Alex Rojas. Wow, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, I haven't read that passage from Grimm's book in a long time, so. <laughs> yeah, I was, <laughs> I was, to hear. I was wondering how much you've read of it. It's so great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh. Yeah, uh, not very much. I'm not going to lie because it's, uh, it's, it's been pretty busy, but <laughs> and, um, but yeah, no, I'm super grateful to be here. Thank you for having me on, you know, this podcast. You just started it, right? Yeah, we've just done just this year. We've done uh, about 40 episodes and we've done it for about nine months. So we're, we haven't hit a year yet. Sweet. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, yeah, you're a um, you're a former resident, uh, you know, organizer in residence uh, here at the bunker, which is how how we met uh, originally <laughs> when you were in right. for the Kerry campaign. Um you will still go down in history here as the only um, uh, person who can walk into the house and not disturb our dog. Uh, Wait, so, really? That's super surprising because I thought I did every time. No. Well, <laughs> I mean, not to the point, like even if, when, if, if, if Nurse Susan goes to sleep and I come home at like 11 p.m., if I just put the key in the door, she freaks out. <laughs> Somehow you were able to come home every night at midnight, one o'clock, and the dog, I don't think the dog ever moved. I don't, you have some sort of like a Jedi mind trick on our dog. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just, I wanted to start a little off a little bit about uh, your background because it's, um, it's really profound and inspiring, uh, not only your experiences, but you know, sort of how, how you got started in organizing. Um, so you grew up in, in Hartford, Connecticut, but you had a lot of family uh, in South America. So you got a huge perspective about that. What was that like? Like what uh, countries were you in and what kind of perspective did you get from South America? Well, yeah. So my family is um, so my dad was born here and my grandparents on his side are from Peru. They both um, were, you know, one out of each of their families sort of uh, and they had like 10 plus siblings sent here to the United States. And on my mom's side, she came to this country from Colombia when she was nine. Um, so just growing up, like I was connected to that story. Right. And then separately, uh, we used to go back and forth to Peru and, you know, I went when I was really young and then I went again, um, and sort of middle school right before entering high school. And I think, yeah, it, it had a pretty big impact, you know, I think going from somewhere like Peru where my family is just so incredibly, um, yeah, it's just so incredibly happy and <laughs> not to say that we're not happy, but, um, has so little, but is so rich in love and just had a lot of integrity and lived off the land, all, all of this kind of stuff. And then going back to, uh, Connecticut and, um, yeah, just seeing that difference throughout high school, I think had a pretty big impact, but yeah, everybody I know is, is back in Hartford, Connecticut. And then I went to high school in Glastonbury. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I saw that you did have family that were basically subsistence farmers and that must be like, uh, you know, just coming from the United States, uh, a, a, an entirely different perspective and it puts sort of like humanity in a perspective, I think a little bit that in a way that I, like I said, I haven't even experienced it, but just sort of thinking about it for a moment, um, is, is profound. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess so. But it's, I, I feel like it's simple, but profound, right? Cause there's so many people that, you know, have the, I feel like similar, similar stories. So, yeah, no, I, 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 I suppose that's so. Um, so, uh, after high school in Connecticut, you made a decision to, to move out West. Um, that seems like a bold, bold move. Like, how did you, how did you decide to do that? 
Um, you know, I've, I feel like I've all like in high school, I, I did a bunch of sports. I worked and obviously went to school. I've always been super active, um, but didn't also (laughs) get, um, the best grades. And so in thinking about, yeah, like how to get to a school that I really wanted to go to. And then also wanting to, um, go outside of Connecticut. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm so grateful for my family and the life that they've been able to build here. Um, and so a lot of them have gone to UConn and which is the, you know, closest university to us and have, you know, everyone is in Connecticut and I just kind of wanted something different. I can't even really articulate why I just, um, wanted to go out to California. Um, I was interested in basketball at the time, I think too. (laughs) Uh, and, and, uh, was thinking about UCLA. The other thing was the community college that I ended up going to after I, I researched it. I, I started probably like my sophomore year thinking about moving out there. It's like right around the time I turned 16 where I could save up and, um, plan something like that. Uh, the college is called Orange Coast College. Um, and I, I don't know if any random tidbit uh, about the California community college system. It's one of the few um, community college systems in the country where students have pretty much a, a, a big direct say. It's a big student government program, um, not just commenting, but you can actually like shift policies within the, the school. Um, and so that with an 80% transfer rate to some of the universities out there. Um, I sort of, yeah, I, I planned it that way uh, and kind of saved up. Um, uh, in California, it takes a year and one day to prove residency. So I worked a bunch of jobs, um, not a bunch, but I probably had like three or four uh, in between, um, a, you know, as, as you're moving into a new place and finding the right fit and stuff. Um, yeah. Oh, for a year and then eventually transferred to Orange Coast College and yeah, started getting involved on campus there too. And, uh, learned about Bernie in 2015. So. Yeah. So you heard, uh, you were already, you know, involved in, in activism and organizing, I guess even, even before you had moved to California, right? Um, not, not so much. Like I, I just honestly, um, focused on like working, going to school. I, like I was saying, I was doing sports. I was always politically aware, but, um, it wasn't until I went to California and I actually, I, I don't tell many folks this, but I started kind of organizing on campus and didn't really inherently see it as political, but, um, it was one of the ways that I I didn't know anyone. I moved from Connecticut to California, right? And, um, one of my best friends, even now who I eventually worked on the Bernie campaign with, like, I remember in one of my first classes, like stood up cause she was part of student government and just, you know, made a pitch for everybody to get involved. Um, and so from there, uh, ended up getting active in student government and then eventually folks pushed me. Um, and I did a lot of stuff within the student Senate and, uh, just, so that was kind of the first taste. And then eventually I tried to transfer over to, um, when I tried to transfer to a UCLA or UC Berkeley, I found out I wasn't going to be able to, um, yeah, uh, the in-state requirements didn't transfer over. So it was going to be out of state for cost. Uh, and that's actually, I feel like my entryway and then found out about Bernie, um, when, when he announced it sort of happened in 2015. So, yeah, so you had like a, a moment, and Bernie's message really uh, resonated with you. So it was like two things were happening, I guess, because um, Bernie's message resonated with me too. I'm a little bit older, so I remember it even before that. Um, but you were also involved in a lot of sort of very experimental, sort of progressive um, organizing, like with barnstorming and putting groups together. Did that start before you sort of were centralized with Bernie uh, or afterwards? Uh, so, uh, in 2015, when they first launched the campaign, I don't know if you guys remember, but it was in that summer, I think it was like June or July. He hosted his like first Barnes, uh, his first live stream. Um, and that, I think that is, is when they like birthed the barnstorming program. So we 
that was something they were having volunteers do. Uh, so even before I joined staff, um, I, you know, was helping put those events together, but I didn't really get familiar that it was called a barnstorm or, (laughs) or because they called it organizing rallies until I joined the campaign, um, closer towards the end of the year. Cool. Um, so how I'm, I'm sort of interested. I don't know a lot about how, um, sort of justice Democrats came together, um, and, and, and sort of how, uh, the young Turks sort of, uh, I guess, sort of supported it. And then you guys all put it together. Can you give us a little background about that? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I'm like, where, where do I begin? And sorry, I have a little bit of a cold, so no worries. uh, all over the place, but yeah, so we launched in, yeah, January of 2017. Um, so, uh, at the time before that, um, we had launched brand new Congress, uh, back in 2016. Um, so that was an organization that was well established and to make a long, uh, story short there, they have a very post-partisan vision and, um, you know, are sort of taking the tack that you can run in all that you should, you know, candidates should run in all parties, um, on this progressive agenda. And so justice Democrats is a little bit more explicitly partisan. Uh, and so when we started talking to Jenk and, um, other folks at the young Turks, yeah, there was just you know, an alignment, an alignment there. But again, like it's jank as an individual. Um, TYT is a completely separate entity, but obviously we're, we're super, super aligned and he's been super supportive, um, obviously up until now. And, and, uh, they've been a huge, huge, uh, resource for our candidates that don't, you know, for AOC, especially right. Like when nobody would cover her back in the day, um, they were there and um, helped with small dollar donations uh, and all of that great stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it really um, it it really resonates with people this idea that there needs to be what I what I would call like a, a mechanism for accountability. Like, yep. you can't just float through and and not be. Uh, accountable for the sort of rep- for the sort of representation uh, that you're holding, and it, but it's but actually, and and I'm uh, you know the other side of that coin is uh, you're fighting some fairly significant uh, structural uh, blockades. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that about how what you ran into sort of maybe with Kerry uh, with AOC and sort of how what kind of strategies have developed. Uh, to sort of take that on? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, right, we're saying that the leadership of the Democratic Party has not um, governed in the way that we would like, right? We haven't seen solutions, certainly for my generation and obviously for the entire country when it comes to income inequality um, and uh, the climate crisis that we've known about for the past 30 years, right? I could go on and on. Uh, And so we're talking about just a different direction and they've been around for much longer than we have. So infrastructurally, uh, we're trying to create, you know, a pathway for working class people to run for office in a system that inherent, you know, does everything it, it can to, to not support those kind of folks. Um, so a lot of the basic stuff of supporting candidates and campaigns is, is a lot of what you would imagine, like, the Democratic Party does, and there's challenges in, in fundraising. I think there's been challenges in in the media, though. I think that we've had a lot of success in you know sort of identifying big moments and, and leveraging what we can um, with a small amount of resources. And you know, for for folks like Carrie's race, and in Carrie's race, um, because of the fundraising and because of um, the difficulty in um, Uh, getting media, you rely, right, on grassroots campaigning um, and in place, you know, but it's a chicken and an egg, right, because you need resources to be able to invest in your field program um, and get your message out to so many people. Uh, So for for candidates like Carrie and AOC, though, uh, I think we had, you know, despite that, you can have a lot of success. um, But I think we also learned how much time it takes to uh, 
you know, lay the groundwork for a really successful program. And if we're going to, you know, be outspent, which we know that we are, right, because we're taking, we're people powered versus big money, um, we need to start early. And so this cycle um, with candidates like Jessica Cisneros and Jamal Bowman, um, and even with AOC way back, right, um, we started over a year out. And for someone like Carrie, which we're super, you know, grateful for, everything that we did there and wish that we, we won, but I wish that we also got in a little bit earlier as opposed to, you know, a few months before the, the election, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, I can tell you, and, and you probably have a very, very good feel for it being here sort of at the end. Um, the lessons that we learn going forward, like one of the things that I try to stress as my own personal belief is, you know, uh, the electoral process and the campaign process is one part of a larger movement. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you fight that battle and, and, you know, you, you take a lot of L's when you fight the battles that we fight, but you can, yeah. you can learn quite a bit. And so that, absolutely that builds over time. There's, there's so, a ton of stuff that comes out of it. Like for AOC reach came out and, and, um, Oh, sorry. I think it's delaying on my end. <laughs> oh, no, no worries. Go, no, go with the AOC and reach. Oh, I was just going to say, like, pieces of technology came out of, um, you know, AOC's campaign, uh, like like something like Reach, right? It was called Van Gogh originally. And um, I, I think our, our hope with some, you know, engaging in a race like Carrie's is that we engage more volunteers and hopefully a lot of the local organizations that are there. I know that it's always a struggle to, to, to build, but that folks... Um, yeah, it galvanized folks around and and hopefully there was there was lasting effect um, in the places that we did participate. So, yeah, I think there has been. I mean, and and, and again, the the movement, the grassroots part of the movement has stayed, uh, you know, has sustained. Um, there's there's groups that are running, uh, you know, leftist insurgent candidates locally. Uh, I I started a podcast, which is sort of inexplicable. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, that that's that's the exciting part of it. So you know the lessons we learned within the electoral process and within campaigns was part of it. But I think just the excitement and the the ability to apply that over and over again. I think it's a lot of lessons learned, um, especially for us. Like you know we have a very. I mean I guess it's true for a lot of different places, but we have a very peculiar sort of state here. We we don't really have a big media market. Uh, we have a large sort of discrepancy between the political sort of outlook between North and South. And so, you know, it's a, there's, there's a, there's a lot of nuances and it's going to take a long time to learn how to build a mass movement across those sort of, uh, you know, those, those sort of obstacles. Um, but coming in and doing what you guys did is a, is a huge move and, you know, we're not going to stop doing that. Yeah, no. And um, another, I think, sort of barrier that that kind of got added to it, though, I don't know if how much it, it affects. Um, well, it, it certainly affects congressionals that I forgot to bring up um, was the DCCC blacklist. That was but that's more recent. So, yeah, I mean, is that something that they're still um, is that happening? I mean, was that a threat or are they following through on that threat? And can you, well, I mean, no, maybe you should, a, maybe we policy. should, maybe yeah. we should explain. So that's their, that's their written policy is, and I'll just explain it, um, for democratic candidates who challenge incumbent Democrats and try to hold them accountable for what they're doing, uh, for groups that work with those, uh, challengers, whether they be field groups, marketing groups, consultant groups are blacklisted from working with the democratic party, I, I guess forever. Um, so is that, is, is that stinging people or, or are people, uh, I mean, how, how, what, what kind of impact is that having, uh, in the, in sort of the consultant and, and organizing world? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's been both good and, and challenging, um, good in the sense that like when it first happened, we were able to create this big, um, database, right. Basically of, all, all these, we launched DCCCblacklist.com and got a bunch of groups, organizations, um, consultants to sign up saying that we're going to work with primary challengers. I think in 
in practice, um, there have been instances, right, where uh, campaigns are looking for uh, vendors that are cost effective for them um, and also don't obviously don't abide by this this policy that DGCCC has put out. Um, and so we're, we're thankful that we've been able to overcome those things, but it has been something like you're working with someone, uh, but then maybe a few weeks later, it doesn't work out for some campaigns. Um, so luckily, like I said, we, there, there's, there's, um, you know, a lot of folks that have stepped up and a sort of new generation of (laughs) consultants, right. That are going to be helpful to, to progressive campaigns, but, um, they're, yeah, they're, um, finding the right fit for cam- campaigns or seeing it fall through has, has also been happening. So, yeah, that's cool. sort of my hope. I, you know, I ju- I've just finished uh, Ryan Grimm's book and you see this movement and my, you know, if you look on sort of the optimistic side of it, you think, well, uh, this can be used as sort of a, an organizing tool and saying, look, the establishment, not, they're so afraid that they're going to institute some sort of policy and you can sort of kind of coalesce around it and rally around this idea that, yeah, you know, it's going to take this kind of movement to, to, to fight this kind of institutionalized um, obstacles, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So... Uh, Last thing before I let you go, and I'll see how I, I want to uh, hear you do it because you probably do it better than I do. So the argument that I'm having now most often um, is the Bernie Warren argument, but it's bigger than that. It's this idea that um, it takes a mass movement to do something, to make systemic change, um, to address the material circumstances that put us in this situation, whether it's hyper local or national or, or in any state that, you know, people have material problems. It, the only way to address those is through, you know, uh, structural change. And I'm having this conversation with people and sometimes I hit and sometimes I don't. Um, how, when you're having that conversation about differentiating candidates that to, you know, a casual follower may look very similar. Um, how are you making that difference? How are you making that argument? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I mean, in the context of how it applies, I, I feel like, um, the way we've engaged in the, the 2020 conversation about Bernie and Warren, um, has been like for our purposes, right. To, try and uplift both of them for, you know, uh, taking on the powerful special interests that I think are currently holding us back and, you know, dedicating a lot of time and resources to trying to build a grassroots campaign, um, and, you know, running on sort of big ideas. Uh, but separately from that, I think when we're engaging in a congressional primary, um, and maybe there's multiple, uh, candidates in a race and, you know, they're very similar on policy and, and, and on ideology. Um, but there's, there's something different (laughs) to what you're describing about the structural change aspect. Um, and, and for us, I think it's, um, when, when it's in that setting, uh, looking at, and, and it's part of our recruitment process, someone's lived experiences and, um, coupled with, well, I think the reason why we think that's so important is because that worldview and how you, I think, see, yeah, see things and um, informs the issues and the values that and the solutions that that you want um, that you're going to be championing in whatever uh, you're running for. So that's what we look for. And so just I think to uh, kind of loop back into what we talked a little bit about in the beginning of like a simple but profound story is someone like AOC, I think on paper, um, honestly, right. Like she's got an incredible background in, um, you know, and, and, and her university and what she did, um, at Boston university. Uh, but also, right. She was a bartender before, uh, running for office and, um, an older sister that was taking care of her family after her father died. Right. Which I think is again, like, um, a simple but profound story. Uh, and I think is feeds into 
that worldview of like why you fight so hard for the solutions that you do uh, and the dedication that you have to um, the movement that we're trying to we're trying to build. I don't know if that describes it because I, I know it's 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 sort of referring to that structural change, but it's hard to for me to on on the Bernie Warren one to be. I, 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 that's why I kind of tried to frame it like the larger, larger picture, because again, I mean, I, I, I well, I, here's the other thing that I fundamentally believe is that politicians aren't silver bullets. And so our recruitment process, I think, tries to get a, try, tries to make us, uh, you know, elect people that are champions and representative of their communities. But I think, you know, the accountability, the, the sort of merging of social movement into the electoral arena also means that that's why we run people powered campaigns, because we ultimately have to hold all of our leaders accountable. Um, regardless, I think that's Bernie, that's Warren, that's the candidates that we have right now, right? I love them. And <laughs> we spent a lot of time recruiting them. But at the end of the day, it's the platform that that they're fighting for and, and the vision and the solutions that we're we're trying to win. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if that makes sense. It, no, it, it it does, and I because there's a there's an application of it, but there, and there's also sort of the philosophical piece of it because I I agree with you. I mean, I don't feel that any candidate is a, a silver bullet that's gonna you know you do this and these things are gonna happen. Uh, but I actually feel like there are there are ways to do it that are uh, more academic or more sort of technocratic and there are ways to do it that are more maybe intangible and it has to do with organizing people together and so i think there is a difference but again it's a nuanced difference and and i think it's maybe <laughs> it's maybe a little maybe a little fraught right now um but yeah i do think there's a little bit of a difference and i'm having trouble articulating it myself so uh you know it's just something we're probably going to talk about for the next 18 months i guess yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. And I think with, with Bernie and Warren specifically, um, Bernie's authenticity and commitment for over 30 plus years and having clarity and fighting for the same solutions is, I think, um, yeah, just speaks to a level of integrity that inspires a lot of people. And it certainly inspired me. Um, and I think Elizabeth Warren is amazing too, but I think, uh, that's unique to Bernie. That's why Bernie's Bernie. <laughs> you know what? I think we're going to leave it like that because I, I could completely agree with you. That's why Bernie's Bernie. And that's why uh, we're a Bernie bunker as well. Um, Alex, uh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I know you're a little under the weather and you're uh, busy as hell, but um, I appreciate you spending the time with us. Absolutely. All right. Bye y'all. Bye uh, Jamie. Uh, bye. Is it Chris? I, I forgot. Oh no, <laughs> it's so uh, Larry and Carl. You don't have to remember. <laughs> it's uh, Larry and uh, Carl are here as well. Larry and Carl. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Well, that's another episode done. We had some laughs. We had some tears. And Rob recorded a closing that I cannot find. So I'm just doing this myself. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Highlands Bunker. And we'll be back next week with more content. It's going to be good stuff. Hope you enjoyed this. Hope you'll enjoy that, and uh, see you next week. Up to the best.